couple things this morning. Um, um, one, if, uh, uh, if you haven't already signed up, the uh, State of the Church is this coming Saturday at 10 a.m. You can uh, sign up for child care, for food. We will feed you. We've got child care up through age 10. Uh, though if you have children who are communicant members, you might want them actually in the, the meeting itself um, since they are full members. Um, you can sign up for that on, uh, on the church website or you can sign up through the app, you know, the Memorial app. If you don't have it, it's a free download in your, uh, in your, 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 your app store. And uh, I believe you can also do it through a Facebook uh, uh, sign-up uh, uh, event as well. The other thing is uh, Taste of Urbana is today after the worship service. Uh, one of our missionaries, who's also a member here, Elizabeth Walsh, uh, is uh, working to prepare for Urbana 2018 this December, and she would love to share more about that. Uh, you can go through either of these doors. It'll be in the auditorium behind us. So that's it for announcements. Heidi Solomon was standing in the kitchen of her Cleveland home, suburban house, slicing a cheese sandwich for her 10-year-old son. And it was an ordinary April afternoon, as ordinary as she had had in the three years since they had adopted their son, Daniel. I don't want that, the little boy snapped. Heidi's a slender woman, barely taller than Daniel, and she didn't respond. Her son's hostility, she knew, had nothing to do with her. We've got a picture of Daniel. Cute kid. Daniel was born, Florin Daniel Bica, in uh, Beclan, Romania. And he spent the first years of his life in an orphanage that was more like a prison than like a house for children that don't have parents. And though he was affectionate when the Solomons adopted him, his behavior had really deteriorated over time and had lately grown much, much worse. He, he smashed toys. He assaulted other children. He was expelled from his school, and he was briefly committed to a psychiatric hospital. But Heidi still wasn't prepared for what happened next. With a snarl, Daniel snatched a six-inch steak knife from a kitchen drawer, and he held it near his mom's throat. Until his adoption, Daniel had never owned a pair of shoes. He'd never been read to. He'd never received a hug. He didn't even know he had parents. He didn't know what parents were. A single window offered the only glimpse of the world outside of the orphanage from his room, which he shared with several dozen other children. He said, at night, you could see the lights of the city. And he says, I wondered what all that was out there because the only world he had ever known was his room in an orphanage far from the city with one window, with no toys, with no kisses, with no parents, with no hugs, and with no love. At one time, the boy was living in this austere orphanage. Adult staff would feed and and clean the children and occasionally beat them with sticks, but otherwise they left them to their own devices. For the six, first six months after his adoption, uh, Daniel seemed to adapt pretty well. He was fascinated with this unfamiliar, elaborate world. He loved talking on the phone, and with his new mother, he learned to swim, and there were some trouble spots too. He threw occasional tantrums. He had a hard time sleeping alone. But he quickly picked up some English words, but he still struggled to communicate when he entered the first year at the local school. And then it was on the day of his eighth birthday party with all of these other children around, all of these parents around, cake, 
toys presents there with everybody there. It was on that day, the first birthday party he had ever had, that Daniel fully realized that someone had brought him into the world and then abandoned him. The thought filled him with an explosive fury. He started screaming. He started throwing things. He started making threats. He says, I I had this idea that Heidi and Rick had left me for seven years. And then they picked me up and they tried to act like nothing had happened. They explained many times that they weren't his biological parents, but he was unconvinced. He says, I didn't care what they said or did. Rage just took over. He would erupt in hours-long tantrums. He'd throw anything he could to get his hands in. He'd, he'd gouge holes in the walls with his own fist. Eventually, Heidi and Rick had to move everything out of his little bedroom except a single mattress on the floor because everything else he touched was a weapon. And the outburst grew worse. When he turned 10, his parents gave him a puppy, which he promptly tried to strangle. The following month, he was sent home Uh, from his congregation in a police car after he charged a bunch of kids with a shovel. The Solomons called in the therapists. Daniel bit one in the stomach, leaving a three-inch gash. Three separate times that same year, he was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital, once after threatening his school principal with a shard of glass. And the institutionalizations actually fueled his anger and made it worse. Before, he would get frustrated, but eventually it would, it, it, it would come down. But afterwards, it would just escalate. After being hospitalized, he became deliberately violent. Heidi was Daniel's favorite target. He'd headbutt her and then smile when he saw that he gave her a black eye. He swung a golf club at her. More than once, when Rick wasn't home, Heidi had to call the police for her own protection against her son, perhaps the only person that Daniel hated as much as Heidi, though, was himself. He talked often about suicide. He made several clumsy attempts. He jumped from a window, deliberately landing badly. He jumped out of a tree, hoping he would die. The family began to crack. Rick started talking about leaving. He just couldn't handle it. Heidi was consumed by guilt. She says, I remember at one point reading in a newspaper of a family of three that had died terribly. And I thought, gosh, that should have been us. We caused so much pain. Mental health professionals, friends, relatives, everyone told Heidi there was no hope. Daniel would never love her and she should give up on him but she wasn't going to back out. She says, though he hated me, I didn't take it personally. I knew it was because of what had happened to him, and I knew he needed a family. He's my son. I never questioned that. On the day Daniel pulled the knife on her, Heidi, who was trained to deal with potentially violent students, deliberately showed no emotion. She knocked the weapon out of her son's hand. She backed away. The crisis was over, but... It was only later that she thought how badly this could have gone down had he killed her. And she looked at him. He's a scrawny 10-year-old, but he's getting bigger every day. He's getting larger. In no time at all, he'll be able to overpower her. She knew they couldn't go on like this forever. By then, several psychotropic medications had been prescribed for Daniel. Some of them were absolutely useless, Others seemed to stabilize his widely shifting moods, uh, but none of them could treat his most serious diagnosis. You see, Daniel had been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, a condition that prevents the sufferer 
from ever bonding with other people. Psychotherapists Terry Levy and Michael Orland say this. They say, an attachment-disordered child believes, I am bad, I am unwanted, worthless, and unlovable. The result, they continue, is a profound sense of alienation that leads to anger and violence. In short, old Daniel was unable to love. What about you? What about me? I know my impatience. I know my anger. I know the sharp words that come out while I'm driving. Thankfully, the windows are up. I know my self-absorption. I know how I take things incredibly personally and how hard it is for me to take myself out of the equation. Uh, You know, perhaps I don't have an attachment disorder, but that leaves me without an excuse. Uh, To love is to enter into someone else's life, to enter into their pain, to, to be present with them, to enter deeply with empathy, taking yourself out of the equation. It's to put others before yourself for their sake in a self-forgetful way. Love is not, you know, self-defacing myself. It's not self-aggrandizing myself. Love is self-forgetful. It's not about me. It's about, it's about all you other people and, and your needs and your experience and empathizing with you and entering into that and being patient with you and loving you in the midst of that. How can I become more loving? We're going to read a passage that you've probably heard a million times. Even if you're not Christian, if you've been to a wedding, 50-50 says you've heard it. I'm hoping you'll see it a little differently by the end of the day today. And see it not as a word of law, but a word of grace, a healing word that can transform those of us who do not love, who have not loved, who have our own issues and can't see past them. People like me, people like you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes with the authority of Jesus. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But I have not love. I am only a resounding gong or a claiming symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. See, now we see but a poor reflection. as in a mirror. Then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Are your Facebook posts kind? 
Will your opponent read them and say, wow, he has so captured my perspective. He has presented my viewpoint with my biases better than I could present it myself. And I see that, that, that she really disagrees with me, and I really uh, uh, respect her for that. But I see that she loves me, and she's understanding where I'm coming from, even if we're on different pages. See, that's love is kind. Do you have love? Do you always protect Do you always trust or do you live in fear and anxiety? What about love keeps no record of wrongs? Who's hurt you? I remember a time in college when uh, there was a campus minister who I didn't think was ministering me very well. God disciplined me by making me a pastor so all of you could think I'm not ministering to you very well. But I remember at one point, there were five things that he had done that had really hurt my feelings. And I was playing through them in my mind, and I could only remember four of them. And I remember getting so angry with myself trying to remember the fifth one. Love keeps no record of wrongs. None at all. To withhold your love from another person, friends, is to break covenant with Jesus, your Savior. For the Christian, Paul says love is supreme. Three points this morning. One, there are two things that can't make us loving, no matter how hard we try. And they're the things we look to all the time, but they can't help. They're worthless. Secondly, if these things can't make us loving, then why does Paul give us the passage he gives us? And then third, what does this have to do with the process of actually learning to love? Um, First, two things that cannot make us loving. The first of these is excellence. The second one is virtue. Excellence, he says, cannot make us loving. He says, I can speak in tongues of men and of angels. I can have linguistic uh, 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 capacities beyond human ability. But if I don't have love, I'm a resounding gong and a claiming symbol. I can have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. I can have intellectual expertise. I can be successful. I can have gifts and powers and abilities. Uh, So uh, uh, capable. Such a great speaker. So insightful. So successful. This guy gets things done. Excellence. He says, without love is completely worthless. Think of Germany. By 1930, the most advanced, sophisticated educational system on the planet, the most uh, uh, powerful industrial complex, a cultural leader in dozens of fields. German engineering was the best engineering on the planet, and without love, all of that harnessed without love created the most advanced, efficient killing machine on an industrial scale with all the efficiency that German engineering could bring it. Without love, friends worthless. Excellence can't make you more loving. And neither, he says, can virtue. He talks about liberal virtues. He talks about conservative virtues. In verse 3, he talks about liberal virtues, like giving everything to the poor. That's so open-minded. That's so progressive. He says you can give everything to the poor, but without love, it's worthless. You can advocate for the refugee. You can have incredible self-sacrifice, he says, but it doesn't make you loving. Because that kind of thing can just make you self-righteous and superior and arrogant and angry. Ask your conservative Christian friends. They will explain this to you. But he also hits on the conservative virtues. Uh, I can surrender my body to the flame, being martyred for the sake of the truth. 
can be that World War II hero who dies protecting the nation. He says you can do all of that. You can surrender your body to the flames, but without love, it's worthless. Without love, it just makes you self-righteous and insensitive and superior and angry. Ask your more progressive Christian brothers and sisters. They'll explain this to you. The point is that virtue can't work in making us loving because virtue harnesses the same kinds of things that sin harnesses as motivational powers. What are those things that it harnesses? Underlying, uh, underlying it is always you know, you know, fear and pride. The, the irreligious person, the non-virtuous person, even if they're secular, the non-virtuous person, you know, if they're going to tell a lie, why are they going to tell a lie? Well, they're going to tell a lie because they're afraid. You know, I'm going to lie on my taxes because I'm afraid I'm going to lose money. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. I'm afraid things are not going to be able to go my way. I'm going to lie on my job resume and present myself as better than I am because otherwise I may not get accepted. I may not get the job. I'm going to lie about my past because otherwise this boy, this girl might think that I'm too dirty or too bad or too worthless. You know, it's, it's, it's always fear, always fear except when it's pride. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to make them pay. Fear and pride you know, for the non-virtuous person are always driving everything. But what about for the virtuous person? You know, the person who says, I will not tell a lie. I did not chop down that Christmas tree. I am always telling the truth. Can you hear the pride in that? I'm not one of those people who lies. I'm one of those people who has integrity and who tells the truth. You can hear the pride or, or what about the fear? I don't want to tell a lie. God might judge me. People might think I'm a horrible person. I might be one of those bad people that I don't want to be. The fear and the pride are still running the system. The virtuous person, the non-virtuous person, the same God driving them both, constantly living out of fear and insecurity and anxieties. And if you live out of your fear and your anxiety and your insecurity, it will destroy you as certainly as if you live out of your pride, whether you're virtuous or you're not virtuous, Paul says. Liberal or conservative, Paul says. It's worthless without love. Because on the inside... Virtue can never erase the fear and the pride. It can't get beyond the self. It's all still about me and not the other person. So, if virtue and excellence cannot make us loving, second main point, so if virtue can't make us loving, then why the heck did Paul give us a virtue list in verses 4 through 7? Well, maybe it's more than a virtue list. You know, I I think back to uh, when I was a a young pastor, 2003, 15 years ago now when I was ordained. I was sort of the whiz kid. I was the guy with all the new ideas. I was the guy who had a different set of gifts than the other pastors, and I had tremendous energy, and I had tremendous drive, and I often relied very powerfully on those. I I relied on my excellence and ran over a lot of people. And as I've grown and matured and God has brought me a whole lot of suffering, I'm a little less worried about getting things done, a little less worried about excellence, I'm a little more concerned that all of you feel loved because God's taken away a lot of that drive, a lot of that energy, a lot of that strength. He's given me a half dozen medical conditions, none of which will be what kills me. I just have to live with them. I don't, I don't have half the strength I had when I was 30. Uh, you know, but, but excellence, what do you rely on 
to fix your marriage? What are you relying on to have your kids grow and be transformed and actually walk with God? What are you relying on? Oh, I'm relying on God to use my excellence and my virtue. Well, you're not going to get there. Uh, Rely on God to make you loving and to give you incredible love that always trusts, that is patient. So if virtue can't make us loving, then why give us this virtue list? Like I said, maybe it's more than a virtue list. You look at the context of verse 3. Who is it who gave all he had for the poor? Who is it who, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, that by his, you know, poverty we might be made rich? Who is it who surrendered his body to the flames, giving his life as a sacrifice for the sake of other people? Who are we reading here? This is the Apostle Paul. And as literature, he is personifying love. He is presenting love as a person. It's like he's, he's saying, you know, you know, Robbie is patient. Miranda is kind. Claudia does not envy. Claude is not proud. Ramon is not rude. Larry isn't self-seeking. Samantha's not easily angered. You know, you know, Fred keeps no record of wrongs. You know, Liam does not delight in evil, but he rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. He's presenting love personified. And this is the Apostle Paul presenting love personified as, as, as the one who gave everything he had to the poor, the one who surrendered his body to the flames. Who was it who was long-suffering, who suffered a long time? Who is it, if you are a Christian, who is it that keeps no record of your wrong? Who is it who never fails? How could Paul write this about love personified and not have a particular person in mind? This is the Apostle Paul's mail that we're reading. And he's talking about Jesus, the man of love. Jesus, who is patient. Jesus is kind to you. And he's not doing this as a moral example telling you, so be like Jesus, be kind like him. You can't. You're fallen and you're broken. You don't have the glory of God like Jesus had. You are not unfallen like him. There's no way you can love. You can't be long-suffering like Jesus because Jesus' long-suffering meant that he went to the cross and absorbed the wrath, fury, anger, and justice of God and all the cosmos against all of our sin so that we never have to do that. And, you know, that's a penalty you can never pay. You cannot be loving like Jesus. It's not possible. But he's pointing you to Jesus who is all of these things for you. Jesus who is patient. Jesus is kind to you. Jesus does not envy. He considered... His equality with God, not something to be held on to, but gave it up, taking on the form of a servant for your sake. Jesus isn't boasting. He isn't proud. He says, I am humble and gentle. You'll find rest for your souls. Jesus isn't self-seeking. He came to save you by dying for you. Jesus is not easily angered. He's slow to anger and abounding in love because he's God in the flesh. Jesus keeps no record of your wrongs if you are a Christian Jesus doesn't delight in evil. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects you. Jesus trusts. Jesus hopes. Jesus perseveres because Jesus never fails. This isn't a virtue list. He's pointing us to the man of love by personifying love. He's pointing us to Jesus who has loved you beyond all measure. 
So Paul is in this guiding us in the process of learning to love. You see, the gospel destroys those underlying things that both virtuous and non-virtuous people are motivated by. He, he addresses the fear and he addresses the pride. He, he destroys your pride when you become a Christian and when you meditate on his grace. He destroys your pride by telling you that you were so lost that Jesus had to die. And he destroys your fear, because he tells us that there's nothing we can do that will ever exhaust his love for us. You see, we learn to love by being loved. You know, this is Jesus saying, I am loving towards you. This is how I am acting towards you. This is my disposition. I'm committed to you. Nothing is going to take you out of my hands. Friends, be loved by Jesus, because this is Paul guiding us in the process of learning to love the man of God who addresses these underlying fear and pride issues so that we can become self-forgetful, taking ourselves out of the equation. It's not about me. You know, Christians should be the least offended people on the planet. Because I have no righteousness to be offended. All I have is Jesus, and that's enough because he loves me and he holds on to me. And friends, my heart's desire is that this would grip your heart so that you would love by living loved, by being loved, by experiencing and believing the favor that he gives you even right now, even at your worst, when you are right there in the most shameful, destructive, addictive point in your life. Jesus is speaking to you if you are a Christian saying, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus at that very moment, he is clothing your shame with his eyes. He is loving you. He is saving you. He is rescuing you. But there's this gap, Paul explains, between when we first know we're loved by God and when it captivates us fully in the coming age. He he says it this way. He says, now I see through a glass darkly. Uh, glasses, a, a mirror in the ancient world was just a shiny piece of metal, and they couldn't shine it up like chrome. I mean, it was, I mean, you're talking about, you know, you know, taking some kind of sponge that you grabbed out of the sea and some kind of oil and rubbing this hunk of metal and hoping it starts to give you something of a reflection. But it would be wavy, it'd be distorted, you could barely make it out what you were actually looking at, and, and that's if you had the money to buy a mirror because they weren't cheap things. But he says, now that's what we see. We see this much of God. You know, God is this vast ocean of goodness and love and purity and what we have revealed to us in this word, even if you know all of the Bible is a beautiful cup of that water. But God is so much larger. He's a vast ocean. He says, now we know him in part because it's a process. But the day is coming when you're going to know God fully just as he knows you fully right now. And so don't beat yourself up if you're somewhere, you know, in this process of, of, realizing you're loved, and truly living out that fully. And if you're like a quarter of an inch over, don't beat yourself up. We're in process. This is normal. It's God's design for us. <coughs> but someday, someday it's going to hit home. It's going to capture you fully, and you're going to learn to live loved. <laughs> By the summer of, of 1999, Heidi... Solomon was ready for some drastic measures. She contacted Ronald Federici, a Virginia neuropsychologist, who recommended a gentler but nonetheless very demanding course of treatment. For two solid months, Heidi would stay within one yard of 10-year-old Daniel at all times. 
He wasn't to ask for anything. He was only to accept food and clothes she handed him. Most important, her son was required to make appropriate eye contact every single time the two interacted. The idea was to recreate a version of the mother-child bond that had never developed. Daniel says, for the first few weeks, I absolutely hated my mom as much as you can possibly hate a human being. But eventually, he began to change. He came to understand that Heidi and Rick weren't his biological parents. And somehow that intense togetherness made the awareness sink in more deeply. So his anger began to dissipate. After eight weeks, his violent outbursts had stopped and he quit trying to hurt himself and he quit trying to hurt other people. But still, you know, obviously Daniel's churning emotions were surfacing in in different ways. He turned passive aggressive. Uh, He would eat his dinner as slowly as he possibly could to punish his parents for making him do it. Uh, You know, he would uh, 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 steal things. But uh, compared with what, you know, Heidi and Rick had been through, this seemed manageable. Like, passive aggression we can handle. He's not sticking a knife to my throat. He's not taking a shard of glass toward, you know, the school principal. Nobody's hospitalized at this point. It seems manageable. So they did something that even Rick later said was insane. They adopted a second Eastern European boy. Two-year-old Alexander Joseph, AJ, arrived from Ukraine to join the family when Daniel was 12. And instantly, Daniel became jealous. He began playing with matches. At one point, he threatened to kill himself. In desperation, Heidi and Rick tried another kind of attachment therapy. Every evening, they sat Daniel, who by now was a good-sized 13-year-old teenager. They would every night sit him on one of their laps, and they would feed him ice cream, and they did not let go until he made eye contact and talked to them. There was no breakthrough moment, but over months of this ritual, coupled with intensive therapy, Daniel underwent a transformation. He began to appreciate how much his parents had done for him. He began to realize that they actually did love him. He started to open up. He stopped stealing. He made a few friends. And his relationship with AJ, who struggled with his own behavioral problems, including hyperactivity and a mild version of the attachment disorder, also improved. Daniel began to take pride in in being an older brother, even babysitting AJ at times. We've got a photo of that. With Heidi's encouragement, Daniel also began to help others. He began uh, 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 to, to lead, uh, be a leader in his youth group. He built homes with Habitat for Humanity. He began training as a volunteer firefighter two years ago. To everyone's astonishment, this guy received his congregation's award for the most outstanding high school student. In his acceptance speech to 300 people, Daniel told of his early life in the orphanage. He thanked Heidi and Rick for everything. And then his voice began to choke with emotion. He spoke the words his parents feared they would never hear from him. He said, Mom, Dad, I love you. I've got a photo of his mom. That's what Jesus, the man of love, is doing for you. If you are in Christ, friends, he is loving you. Though you fight against him, though you rage against him, 
the degree to which you believe his tender love and compassion for you, the degree to which you entrust his love with your future and your well-being and the future and well-being of your family and those you care about, the degree to which you can rest in the love of a father who truly loves you is the degree to which you, living loved, will be able to pour that love out on others. Look at Jesus, the man of love, crucified for you, his arms outstretched as if to embrace you, outstretched in a, in, a, in, a, in a posture of openness and vulnerability. Look at his arms stretched out for you. And they're nailed there. They were nailed there by his love. In a sermon titled Heaven, a Kingdom of Love, Jonathan Edwards speaks of heaven and what that means, that God is love. He was America's greatest philosopher. He was a congregational minister. Jonathan Edwards, we know him for one sermon on hell. He should be known for much more. Encyclopedia Britannica called him the greatest intellect ever to set foot in the Americas. That's impressive. They don't say that about me. Jonathan Edwards, he talks about heaven. And talks about God being a God of love. He writes this. He says, This renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love, as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. He says the the apostle tells us that God is love and therefore, seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing that God is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. And in that he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. There, even in heaven, dwells God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was proceeds. There dwells God the Father. God the Son and God the Spirit united as one in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Priests, the Prince of Love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death for men. There dwells the great mediator through whom all the divine love is expressed towards men and by whom the fruits of that love have been purchased and through whom they are communicated and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all of God's people. And there dwells Christ in both of his natures, the human and the divine, sitting on the same throne as the Father. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed forth in love and by whose immediate influence all holy love is shed abroad in the hearts of all of the saints on earth and in heaven. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. 
There, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in beams of love as the rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Again, I would consider heaven a world of love. Friends, this is the love that is breaking into the world in Jesus Christ. He delights in you completely. He rejoices over you in song. Friends, you don't have to do anything but live loved. Live loved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, all we have, all we need, all we hope,